Life has its ups and downs. Our guests will share their story and their journey through life. They'll share the struggles they hit and how they pivot in a way to come out stronger and better than before. Growing up, we are taught there is one way of life that essentially creates our life's checkmark. You have a choice to go in any direction you desire. As you listen to our guest, you're encouraged to look at your life and the checkmark you created in your mind and readjust if needed after listening to some of the incredible stories told. This is the Life's Checkmark Podcast, and I'm your host, John Emery. The road less traveled as entrepreneurs can be scary by yourself, but if you surround yourself with like-minded people like I did, you will go further. I joined the BLN Network, and currently we are looking for speakers, coaches, authors, marketers, podcasters, and fractional professionals. If you have a business of any kind whatsoever, please check out BLN Network. It's a fast-growing network of entrepreneurs looking to excel your growth and your business and work together. You can see my link in the show notes. Hey, Jason. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Just a backup story. I was able to get introduced to Jason through another podcaster. And, you know, we were able to have a little chat and, you know, you have an incredible journey. I, I only know a little bit about it, but um, I'm happy to dive into what you have to share with others, you know, how you went through everything in life. And we'll just start with, you know, let's go with who you are today. And then let, let's just go to, you know, how you got to where you are today, you know, what you actually went through then. Yeah, I uh, thank you for having me. I actually have to back up and ask one question, because if you remember when we first talked, uh live you were i believe on your way to a soccer game did they win the game that's your daughter was that was practice it was just practice so i would say yeah (laughs) everybody wins in practice got it yeah and i just remember that was that was great she's bouncing in and out um but yeah thanks for having me and um yeah jason lennox and um i uh, work in administration in the substance use disorder field so i lead uh few different teams that really um, create access for people to get treatment, manage the the revenue, and really just ensure that our our company um, uh, does well financially. So that's my day job. I um, also have a couple, say, side businesses. One is a a recovery home. So I have a couple of recovery homes here in the, the metro area of Minnesota, um, I've had that going actually just past five years of having uh, the first one open and then the subsequent one was a couple of years after, but that's been an amazing journey. And then I do some uh, consulting and speaking, uh, just getting out into the, the industry and the space of substance use disorder, mental health, behavioral health, uh, really combined and um, again, use my own experience and blended with my kind of technical work in the corporate world to to really bring all sides of this thing together we have clinical people we have business people and sometimes we're not on the same page so um all that comes from really my experience um, that i'm sure we'll get into but that's a little bit about me uh, like i said i'm in the metro area of minnesota i've spent most of my life in minnesota and um, had a long journey, which I'd uh, be happy to uh, summarize and share the highlights of. That's where I'm at today. Yeah, <clears throat> I appreciate sharing what you're doing today. And let's let's go into that journey of what you actually went through to get to where you are. So 
you you decide where you want to start because I don't know your past. So you know, begin where, wherever you like, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, no, I, it's uh, fortunately I've um, done this uh, many many times over, and so I uh, I love getting out and sharing and speaking, and just published a memoir that really everything behind what I do is to. Uh, insert a, a message of hope and recovery and uh, really help the world be a little more educated, uh, less stigmatizing and things of that sort. So uh, I, I typically, you know, start with kind of that upbringing that I had and my mom and step, my mom and father, actually, I was born in Massachusetts. They were very young when they had me and I have an older brother. Uh, they had some problems with drugs and alcohol, you know, and they were young and just kind of trying to figure this life thing out. So um, some troubles there, but as my mom split with my dad, she moved us out to Minnesota where her father was. And uh, my dad bounced back and forth a little bit. My mom was able to kind of get on the right track and dad, not so much. He just struggled with some of the harder drugs and really drank a lot of alcohol. He lost his mother when he was 13 and that really devastated his whole world. And from everything that I heard about that journey that uh, it, it just altered the trajectory of his life. So that he was in and out. And then as, as my mom uh, moved here, got acclimated to Minnesota, she found a, a partner ended up getting married and had two more kids, my younger brother and younger sister, different dads. Uh, and we grew up in that house and it was, there was some chaos. And, and, and I always like to say that, my mom and my stepdad are two of the most important people in my life. And I realized that some of my upbringing and my perception of what was going on was truly that my perception. I had a lens for everything that wasn't working. And so I always like to preface that because when I tell the story about the chaos and growing up, it wasn't just that there was chaos with mom and stepdad, uh, but there was a lot of that there. And so we were in trouble a lot. I felt like gosh, even if we aren't doing anything wrong, we're doing something wrong. And I always looked outside to the outside world and all the other kids around thinking if only I could have sleepovers, if I could go play sports, if I could do what Johnny's doing, uh, Jackie's doing. And, you know, I always just wished I had what everyone else did. And it made for a little bit of a miserable existence growing up. And, you know, I was nine, 10 years old when the thoughts started coming to my mind about, would it be better off if I wasn't here? I, because I, I, I didn't understand what this, this, this life was about. And I remember standing in the kitchen and I had had a big kitchen knife up to my chest. And I, I, I thought, how bad would this hurt uh, before it was over? And so I was 10 years old, already struggling badly with mental health and, and thoughts of suicide and just not really uh, a clear direction in terms of what my life was going to be, what it was supposed to be and all this stuff in the house. Right. So it, it just all, I tell all that story because it just kept building up this pile of emotions, anxiety, depression, remorse, guilt, shame, all those things uh, that eventually when I landed in a place where I found drugs and I found alcohol Man, it was like that pile. That that pile was something that was wiped away. And you know, as I started to get into drugs, get into alcohol, I realized that man, this actually makes me feel a little bit more okay with life. I feel like I can I can sit and have a conversation with John or with you know anyone else. Um, I could maybe hang out with some of the other kids, um, but I still long for that sense of belonging, and that's actually what got me to 
the drugs and the alcohol because my mom got divorced. We moved about 30 miles away and I thought this is a new chance to go into a new school. I was the kid that got picked on. Um, this is going to be a new life, a new opportunity. And maybe I would find some friends and just start something new. And so junior high, I started in this new school. It's actually worse because now I'm not only getting picked on, but I'm the new kid. So it's, you know, uh, it, it just didn't go as my mind had, had planned or had imagined it would. Um, so in eighth grade, I started getting into some trouble. Before that, I was actually a really good student. I got uh, straight A's. Uh, I just excelled in school because that was the one place that I could go. I felt like I, things were safe there. Felt like things were in my control because my report card was my report card. And it didn't matter what anyone else said. That was my track record. So that's what I, I, I latched on to. <laughs> Eighth grade, junior high, I started getting into some trouble again because I started hanging out with people who were drinking, doing drugs. And I did that because, again, I just wanted to feel like I belonged somewhere. And I got sick many times to start that journey. But again, I, I was like, whatever it takes to just feel like I belong. So that's where the trouble really started for me. Eighth, seventh, eighth grade, I started using and, and, and smoking cigarettes, hanging out with the wrong people. And my mom noticed that. And my older brother was also getting in his own trouble. So she sent us out back to Massachusetts and said, you're going to go find your father, spend a little time with him. Probably thinking if we saw the way that his life had gone, because he was really mostly absent. I, I don't didn't really have a lot of memories of him you see how he's living life and what's going on perhaps you'll have a glimpse into your own future so we go out there and my aunts can't find my dad and they're like don't worry this is this is not unusual and we know how to solve this we just call the detoxes call the treatment centers he's going to be at one of them in the state of massachusetts we just know unfortunately that's how it is <clears throat> that's exactly what happened they found him in a detox center so they took us to see him and I'll never forget that there he, we were just watching. And I, again, I didn't have any recollection of this man. I didn't really have any pictures. I didn't even know who I was looking for, really. And they finally bring him up and he's in a gown and he's he's got long hair. It's crusty. He's just in really bad shape, really out of it. Doesn't really know what's going on, where he's at because um, he's withdrawing. And they got him on a whole bunch of medications. And it, it just was a very interesting first uh, memory of interacting with that man well we stayed there for a couple of weeks and he had come hang out for a while and then he'd have to go home because he wasn't feeling good you know and and really my aunts knew what that meant and uh, so he would go and then drink and then he'd come back and but my mom told him i'll actually move you out here if you want i'll give you a chance to be with your kids again I will put you up under my roof. I, it doesn't matter. I, I really don't care what you do. You don't have to contribute anything to me. There's just one stipulation. And that's that you got to stay sober. You got to stay sober to be with these kids. Okay. And at the same time, uh, so I'm painting this picture in my head, like, well, oh, he's got an easy decision. You're either kids here or drinking here. The doctor at the same time is telling him he's 36. By the way, that's that's how old I am today. So it's it's a, it's a bittersweet uh, way to to share here. He's 36, and the doctor is saying you've got the beginning stages of cirrhosis of the liver. Now here's the deal: it's early enough that if you stop drinking and you turn this thing around, there's a chance that you live just like the rest of us—a lengthy life. Maybe you have a few complications. But if you don't and you continue down this path, 
you're going to die from this thing and it's going to happen sooner than you probably think. And so again, painting this picture because I uh, frame this up as an easy decision. You have kids, no drinking, your life, or you drink and you die, you lose your kids. It just seems so logical to me. For many years, it seemed that way. And I share about that. And then I share about that with the rest of the world because that's what our world sometimes thinks, that it's just a simple decision like that. And when you put it on paper, that that, that looks like a simple, easy decision. Problem with substance use disorder and recovery is is so much more than just a decision. And it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't really a matter of choice for that man. So he moves out and he's out for four or five, six months or something. And I come home from school one day and my mom's like, I'm sorry, he's, he's gone. I had to send him on his way. He couldn't do this. And it, it was, it was heartbreaking because actually we had gotten to know this man and he was, he was like a me. He was the exact version of me. Even my family today, they're like, it's scary. One of my aunts who I met years later, she's, she couldn't even look at me for, for weeks, for several times after we got together because she's like, this is just too scary. This you, Everything you do is like that, man, which is ironic because we didn't spend a lot of time together. Nonetheless, he's gone. He leaves. And the doctors, you know, they predicted they predicted it right, like doctors often do. And I got a text message three years later. I was 17. He was 39. And cirrhosis of the liver took his life. And honestly, that made me as mad. I had so much resentment against that man for a long time because, again, I just thought, even in the middle of my own drinking and using, I just thought, why can't he, why wouldn't he, why would he pick the drinking over his kids? That was my, my perception for a long time. In those three years, though, I'd gone from this kid who just wished I had some friends and had what the other kids had to I finally played sports for the first time. My uncle put me into football in ninth grade. Then I played basketball. 10th grade, I'm playing on the varsity team. I got the cheerleader girlfriend. Like everything that I would have ever wanted was there. And uh, the problem was, uh, people will probably relate with this, and I would argue that this is a problem in our world, but much more for me in those moments, um, I just had this forgetter. I forgot uh, that what I had was really good enough. And actually, it was more than good enough. It was more than I ever could have imagined having. But in the moment, I thought bigger, better, faster. And I remember my, what once was the best girlfriend to me thought, yeah, maybe she's actually the second best girlfriend in the school. Maybe number one is over there and maybe I should try those waters. So it, it was all greed and ego and, and the, the things that come with the disease of substance use disorder. And, and I like to emphasize that because it was not the alcohol and substances that really created most of my problems. I did a lot of stupid things uh, using drugs and alcohol, but it was my thinking and it was my behaviors and it was the feelings I had in my heart and the thoughts I had in my head. That was really what was going wrong. And the drugs and the alcohol actually served as my solution. It was the only solution I ever found in life that would shut my brain off. That would make me feel a little more at ease. That would make me feel comfortable in situations. Nonetheless, I leave that girlfriend and my friends start like everything starts to fall apart because people are realizing what's happening to this high school kid who's throwing his life away and and turning and and not even hesitating to hurt somebody 
who would have done anything for him. So I start losing all my friends. And it was at that time, then my dad passes away, I discover methamphetamines for the first time, go on a weekend binge. And uh, th that started the downward spiral. I was uh, 16 years old at that time. And after that um, junior year, I moved out of the house because mom and we, we just didn't get along. And I was a, a little jerk for sure. And, and again, she just uh, had some strong personality things too. So my senior year, I go to school, play football, and then call it a day because that's the only thing I really cared about. I dropped out, um, sleeping on the streets my senior year, uh, found a girlfriend, ended up getting her pregnant. Um, that didn't work out. I went back to being homeless because we just couldn't get along. And I was in and out of jail, ended up back in school after a few months. They gave me a chance to, to redeem and, and really make up some work, graduate. So rough uh, final year to my high school. And I'm already, again, I'm 18 years old at this time, sleeping in the backseat of cars on park benches. It's a Minnesota winter. You and I were just talking about this. It's, this is not a fun place to be outside in the winter. And, you know, I, I'm fighting to, to find places to sleep at night. And during the day, I'm fighting to scrounge up some food and, the most of all addiction is just running the show at that point. And I don't, I don't even realize that I have all these problems. I, I'm just like in the middle of life. Uh, I wouldn't even call that <laughs> much of a life, but that was my experience. And I, I barely graduated, sat a little more jail time. My probation officer uh, believed me or uh, allowed me to move back to Massachusetts. I said, if I move away, things will be better. She said, well, why do you say that? And I said, well, because uh, if you hung around with the people I hung around with, you'd do the same things, right? So it's always somebody else. Uh, she does let me move away, but I knew I was temporary because I have this baby boy inside this girlfriend that I had gotten pregnant. And I knew because of my experience that I was going to be there every day for him. So I made that commitment. I was out in Massachusetts for a few months, got the call. She was going to go into labor picked up this van my uncle bought and drove straight through from Massachusetts to Minnesota, 24 hours. I get to the hospital the next night. And there he is. I'm holding this boy. And, and I make every effort to live in this van in the Minnesota winter, just so I could be in the town where he was again, no place to really live at that point. So staying in the van, seeing the boy during the day, try to work things out with mom that it didn't go well. It really, we just couldn't make it work. Um, I had started working for one of the first times in construction and there was a lot of drinking going on. So I was doing a lot of drinking. I had actually given up all the hard drugs, which was a huge improvement in my life because then at least I went to bed and I ate food and you know, again, I was working. So I leave and the first thing she did was said, you're not going to see your kids. In, you know, you, I'm not letting you see them. You're loaded all the time. And, um, at, you're not coming around. And I think she is really more upset that we were breaking up. Uh, and I think it would have been a temporary decision, but I took off um, and took off as relative. Um, it was only 30 miles away that I went, but I didn't have a, a vehicle anymore. And so it, uh, that was a long way. And I went on a four year, um, just a hellish ride where I was in and out of jail uh, many times and uh, DUIs and disorderly conducts and property damage. And I picked up a felony drug charge. I had passed out uh, on a Saturday afternoon at a, at a local bar where they had just happened to have the biggest pool tournament of the year. It was one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life because I'm passed out in the lobby and 
everybody's drawing on me and then they don't even know if I'm alive. So they call the cops, you know, as the cops are digging for ID, they find bags of, you know, drugs and, and Coke and small amounts, but nonetheless, um, they locked me up. And the next day I woke up terrified. I, uh, I had no idea how I had even gotten there and had to read my, my intake paperwork to, to figure out what had happened. And all I saw was that there was a chance I would go to prison for five years. And um, I, every time I'd gone to jail, what happened was twofold. One, it, uh, this claustrophobia, this, this sitting inside a six by nine cold brick cell, not knowing what's going to happen is one thing. But then for someone like me and maybe people who are listening where you have these chemicals and this, this dependence on something, the only thing that's ever solved the problem of the anxiety, the depression, the, the, all the thoughts, all the feelings, that was removed. And so I was left with uh, double the problems just in terms of like physical experience, emotional response. Um, and so the next day I went to court, the judge said, I'm going to let you out here. You're going to come back for a court date, but here's the deal. You need to quit doing the drinking and the drugging and stay out of the bars. And it, yes, yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm walking out of that detention center. And I remember walking back to town thinking, I don't know what the heck's going to happen to me. I'm scared of this whole possibility of prison, my freedom being gone and, and this felony now being on my record. But I know one thing, and that's that I'm not going to drink or do drugs ever again, ever again. I, I knew that that was the moment that my life had to change. And uh, not so surprisingly, probably to many, six hours later, I was back in the same bar, drinking the same drinks, doing the same drugs, hanging out with the same people. No idea what happened in that time. No thought, no conscious thought process that said, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? That was addiction running rampant and, and running the show, truly. When I was walking that walk, I wasn't talking to anyone else. It was just me and me. And I was being sincere with me, knowing that that was the last time I was ever going to see that place. Um, and uh, again, that's just the, 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 the lack of mental capacity to actually just make a decision that I always thought was so easy. So I go back to court. Um, and they end up giving me a sentence of a year and a day in prison. Here's the deal. They're going to take away the felony. If I can complete the probation, they're going to stay the prison sentence. Okay. This is all good for me. So I agree to that. I come I get a sentencing date set and I don't show up for that. And of course, then a warrant goes out again and I get locked up after a long bender and, and um, go back in front of the judge and then they sentence me to a little jail time. And the, my lawyer said, I, I don't know if you think this is a game or something. This isn't detention back from school. When they tell you to show up and do something, you need to do it. This is you're in felony, you're on felony probation. Now you have to show up at the sentencing date or they're sending you to prison. So, okay. 21 days later, I show up at the sentencing date, um, turn myself into jail I'm absolutely loaded. So they lock me in the cell intake isolation for another three days. And, you know, got out of there. And again, uh, it just so happened that my cousin was a, an administrator of that jail. And so every time that I had to walk out, I, you know, not every time, but most times I would have to face her walking out of that office. And, 
And every time I would say, you, this is it. You're not going to see me again. And I left that day after my scheduled sentence. Uh, they let me out at 8 a.m. And I knew that that was the end of the road again. And by 9 a.m., I don't know what happened, but I'm banging on the liquor store door saying, your hours say 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. You got to let me in. So again, just more of this, what the heck happened? And I share all that because I think it's so important, John, to 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 have people either who can relate with that or maybe just don't know and they haven't had that experience understand that when we go through these things there is and sometimes we are sometimes we're manipulative we're, we're thinking about ways that we can pretend or lie or whatever but there are a lot of times when people are truly sincere when i tell this story in treatment centers the, sh the people that shake their heads going wow yeah i get that that was me and that's what it took for me to hear that from other people to think I'm not crazy because the rest of the world just kept saying, well, if you don't want to go back to jail, it's pretty simple. You just don't drink, don't do the drugs. And, you know, after I heard that for enough years, I started believing it. Yeah, it is that simple. And some reason, uh, for some reason, I'm, I'm that much of a screw up that I can't figure out simple. And, and that led me to, I don't want to be here anymore. Uh, again, I, those thoughts started at a young age. But after enough of those experiences, enough of, yes, this is the last time and the world saying this has to be your last time and then falling on my face, enough of that just led me to what's the point? What is the point in this life? And I, and I knew at about 21 um, that, that uh, I didn't stand a chance against this thing. My cousin is a defining moment. He, he's no longer with us. He died in a motorcycle crash, but he was one of my best friends growing up and, and he struggled mightily with drugs and alcohol. And he looked me in the eye one Saturday morning, someone who struggled way longer than I did and said, why do you do what you do, man? You got your dad, the history there, his dad has cirrhosis, your family, all this trouble, your son, you're not with your son. It's been years, man. Why do you do this? And I was, it was the first time I said, I, I, I don't know. I, re I didn't say it to him because I would never admit that. But internally, that was the first time I said, I don't know why I do what I do. And that was the most hopeless position I'd ever been in in life because I'd, I had no answer. But I look back on that. And in terms of my recovery, that was the best thing that ever could have happened because it was the first time that I stopped pretending like I had an answer. I stopped trying to play the games that said, I will beat it this time. I will do this differently. And from that moment on, I just gave up on that game and said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die this way. And so my only goal is to minimize the pain along the way. And, you know, that uh, just became harder and harder and harder. It took more of uh, the right combination of drugs and alcohol and people and places to even just take the edge off a little. And so that was the, and, and suicide was top of the mind daily. I, I got behind the wheels of, other people's vehicles loaded high drunk it took them for a spin down the highway as fast as i could 90 miles an hour 95 and just thinking if there's a god or any kind of power out there just give me enough strength to crank this wheel this time because i, I don't want to go back i don't want to wake up and do this again tomorrow I, I i'm i there is no hope and i just want this to be over thankfully uh as 
you might guess that none of that actually happened. Um, I always, and I don't know how I survived so many of those days and months and years because it was absolutely miserable and brutal. Um, I ended up on that felony probation and I got caught a year in using. And so I, I stopped going to me. I ran, I stopped going to meetings. I stopped going to, to the probation meetings. I didn't go to court. I was on the run for a year with felony warrants, got picked up with 11 violations of that, of that probation, more drugs. So, and, and it ended. And the only reason I got picked up and I always knew it was going to end. I knew there was no way I was going to outrun this thing forever. I was just hoping I died before I got caught. But I got caught because I, I was I was working in a group home. And I was the sole provider taking care of four developmentally disabled adults. You know, they couldn't walk. They couldn't talk. They couldn't see that kind of thing. I'm the only one there. And before I'd even gotten there, I had, I had done a whole bunch of methamphetamines. I was in a really bad spot. Um, I'm, I'm on the way to work and I'm chugging vodka because I, I'm like, I, I'd gone too far one way with the meth. And so I did what I always did, bring myself down. That didn't work. So I'm, I'm in this place and I'm in the basement again. So embarrassing when, when this story came out, I'm in the basement and I'm snorting meth and I'm drinking, um, alcohol while these people can't take care of themselves are upstairs and, and nothing is working. And so then I call my cousin he brings some pain pills. It took a couple, took a couple more, couple more. And uh, next thing I know, it's the next day and I'm in a hospital bed and I wake up and I have a coworker next to me who's bawling. She's frantic. You know, you might've lost, thank God you're, you're awake. You might've lost your job, but at least you didn't lose your life. And the only part of that statement I heard was, you mean I might've lost my job? Does that mean I might not have? I, I had like no impact of I just about lost my life and it wasn't intentional but I've been telling you I didn't have any desire to wake up and by the way I was on the run for a year so standing next to me uh, was a, a police officer who was not going to leave my side and I was going to go to jail as I went to jail I sat in that jail cell for the, that time December the 9th of 2010 in the worst that was the worst day of my life I, i'd never felt that kind of feeling that kind of uh, powerful because i was withdrawing heavily from it and, and coming off an overdose and on the run for a year and again another story that's just so embarrassing and and all the lies i'd been telling people it all came crashing at once and i called my mom because my, my family had done an intervention a year and a half prior did not work at the time. It was not like the show when I uh, wanted nothing to do with that. And um, it was actually a really bad experience for everyone involved. Um, but I called her then because I, I remember that. And I knew I, I, I knew there was no way I was going to find a different life. So I wasn't calling because I wanted some kind of uh, opportunity out of life. I was calling because I needed to escape that pain. And I said, I'll talk to the treatment people, that interventionist, bring them all. I just, something has to change here. So I get in front of the assessor. She finds me a bed in treatment. Uh, I end up in treatment. And, and as I'm there, the first week I'm there, I get a call that I have visitors and, and I knew it wasn't visitor day. So something was wrong. And they take me up and there's my mom and my uncle. And they're like, look, you're, it's your grandma. She's gone. And that just about crushed me and turned me in the other direction because the intervention I just talked about took place at my grandma's. My grandma was where I, during the summer, that's where I grew up. She would, grandma's place was the best. I hope you have had a grandma like that and other people get to experience a grandma like that, where it's like, 
you couldn't do anything wrong, right? She was, it could just make her mad and she would threaten everything and I, telling grandpa and all those things. And within an hour, she was back to the same old loving angel that she always was. So she took care of us, a lot of us as, as we were kids. And she was one of the last ones sitting there trying to plead with me to go to treatment with that intervention. And I, I was so mad that day, Jen. I, all I could do was yell back and scream and cuss and say things I would never repeat. And those are the last words I ever got to say to that woman. So when they told me this, I'm, I'm like destroyed. How, what, what worse feeling could there be? But I tell that because it really changed my entire uh, journey. I, I, I ended up uh, saying some prayers and I wasn't a religious person, but I didn't know what to do. I, I, I went to this chapel and I just got down there and I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say what, how this works. Anyway, what I could spit out was all I know is I need help. I need help because I, I, what I want to do is get out of this place and go find the comfort, the only comfort I know. I stayed there. I felt a little bit better. And then I did that again and I kept doing that. And so that, that started my journey and kept me there. And then I got to experience the love and the grace of other people. These people in treatment were baffling to me. They, they wanted to hear about my story. And I'm like, yeah, I know you think this is all fine and dandy, but if you hear me tell some of the things I've done, you'll never look at me the same and yet you will not want to help me. And they just kept saying, we don't care about any of that. We don't care about any of that. We care about your well-being and that you have a chance at this thing called life. And I, and I, I couldn't believe that. I, that's not how I experienced life, people, love. None of that was there for me. Some of that was me. Some of that was just where I was and, and how my journey went. Uh, but that kind of thing kept me around. And then they said, go to a halfway house and then go to these Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all these meetings, get a mentor, a sponsor, just do what they say. And all that pain and misery led me to the place where I'm like, I don't, I can't see how this would work for me, but I know that these people who are telling me they have a different life now, I know they're telling the truth. So believing that they were telling the truth is what it took for me to stick around. Again, not believing that that could happen for me, but knowing that they were truthful and that's what kept me around. And, and the people that I got in front of taught me lessons about love, about service and, and that there was a way to get out of this. If I could clean up my life, if I could own up to my problems and I could try to repair those and I could continue to grow and then get out and share with the world and show the world and contribute to the world, my life would be meaningful and I wouldn't have room to think about that drinking and drugging and it was an up and down first year. I had even those thoughts of suicide coming in at the end of the year thinking, I can't imagine staying sober, but I can't imagine going back. The only way out seems to be down. And, you know, I made a call and, and reached out and said, I need help again. And the guy said, come on over, we're going to do this. And, and people like that in this world of recovery just took me under their wings, man. They just showed me that this this is what life can actually be like. And I just followed their lead. And, you know, I, I stayed with my sponsor because I had no place to go. I mean, I went to treatment. I did all those things. That didn't amount to a whole lot in terms of me getting anything. I walked into treatment everything less. I didn't have a home, a car, a job, money, driver's license, social, nothing. And I, I had to build all that up. And at 24, for the first time, I got my own apartment phone and the utilities like what are these responsibilities um but i was so grateful for all of them i'm glad that i came from nothing and had nothing 
because I just appreciated so much more of those. And, and then I went back into school and, you know, got a business degree and got into this treatment industry in 2015, about five years sober and um, started as a treatment tech where I just got to on the front lines, work with the people that they were like me walking into that treatment center, just hopeless and feeling like there's nothing that's going to work. And, and I quickly went into a finance role and then worked for the corporate finance team and, and worked on our expansion nationwide, just got to tap my fingers into so many things. And, um, you know, I, I, I then moved into another corporate role software and then moved into another one. And I've had seven roles in seven years in this industry and just progressively have, have grown my skill set and now lead teams and departments and, and just get to make a difference on the, on the biggest level. And, and now, you know, just, share one more little piece about the whole journey and that's my family and the relationships that I've had because they were all broken and it wasn't just that they it, they had certainly most a lot of people had given up on me which you know what when we don't understand this disease it's easy to to give up on people because like I said it's pretty simple to just say hey if you don't want to do it then don't do it um and so I I, there was a lot of resentment there because I felt like I was the kid that got left out in our family, though I had all the drinking and the birthday parties for the kids were at the legions and, you know, all those things where like, we had the problems everywhere, but because I was into drugs, somehow that was different. And they kind of, I kind of felt disowned and, you know, I had to suck it up in, in all the self-development work that I continue to do. Um, it was 2016, 2017, I went through a seminar, a weekend deal, and I just started getting back to that family. And, and you know what, saying internally, I don't care what they've done. If they owe me anything, if I owe them anything, I'm just tired of going to funerals and weddings. And that's the only place I see them. So I, I went after it and, you know, did everything and I've done everything I can to establish those family relationships and, and even non-family and that's that's uh, where I spend most of my time now between work and doing the things that I'm passionate about with speaking and connecting with uh, wonderful people like you and and family. You know, I told you when we started, I'm jumping on a plane tomorrow to go see uh, my aunts and cousins and, and just anyone I can while I'm out there on the East Coast. And I do that five, six times a year. And every weekend around here where I'm at, it's um, building those relationships Um and completing them. So I lost grandma number one, the way that I did, that was heartbreaking. Well, my second grandma, when she passed away, uh, we, we knew there were some things wrong and she was in the hospital for two weeks. And you can believe in 2016, when that happened, I was in, in the hospital sitting next to grandma, combing her hair, holding her up, doing everything I could for the last couple of weeks of her life, because I was not allowing another relationship to end without feeling complete and without doing everything I could to, um, to, to, to leave us both in a peaceful position. And so that, that relationship thing is, has been huge. Um, I know I've, uh, shimmied right through from, uh, uh, beginning to end there. And, uh, I imagine that probably means we're getting close to time, but, um, if there, are, you know, other things or questions or, uh, parts that just are um, maybe could use a little more um, happy to expand or uh, wrap up or however you see fit but that's a that's a story and those are, that's just a beginning it's just a 
the tip of the iceberg of the, of the meaning and the purpose and the depth that, that my life has found over the last 13 years. And um, it really is because someone like me stood on the other side and said, this is what my life was like, and this is what it's like today. And I promise you that that's possible. It's only because those people said that, that I stuck around long enough to actually experience it. And so that's why I'm so passionate about sharing this thing because that's it, what saves people's lives just the, the words and the and the passion and the you know the empathy and and the education so uh grateful for this opportunity for sure yeah um so yeah you had a lot you shared and i i am one where i either you know i'll we'll go back and forth in, in between things or whatever but that's because the guest decides to break off every once in a while and you just you had a great story to sh- or journey to share, and I I don't want to cut that out sometimes. So that's that's why it, I just let you go. And you know I so I took a lot of stuff in, you know, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. And it's going to resonate with a lot of other people, and that's why I hate to cut into stuff, right? So yeah, there, there's questions and stuff, but you know, with time or whatever, I'm not going to dig into everything, but. So a few things I can point out is that you had, you're looking for external validation in the beginning, you know, with your friends and everything and trying to get around them doing the drugs and all that stuff, that group, right? And then you had your girlfriend and and it seems like you're getting better. And then that was a different kind of group of friends, if if I'm right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Right. And so, so, so you're, you're here, you're coming over this way and then now you're going back the other direction. So um, what I like to share too is it's the people that you're around, you know, your environment, which unfortunately kind of controls the direction you go in sometimes because you feel like you have to be part of that group. And so that's what I got from your experience as well. Um, but what I really like to point out is how you have been blessed to go through so much stuff in such a small period of time. I, I call it a small period of time. And to come out better on the other end, to share your journey with the other people that are seeking help or don't even know that there is help for them. Because it takes one that's been through it to guide them to get through it as well, right? So you found that person, there's few people that, you know, your cousin said something to you. You had a, you had a lot of stuff along the way to say, hey, go this direction, go this, but it wasn't enough, right? And uh, it takes that one person that's been through it to guide you along, right? And then and then for you to help somebody in the back end that wants help too. So now you're in the middle, you know, and then you're going to become that guy that's that's helped you and, you know, mentor, mentee, you know, and that's basically how it works out. So I I appreciate you sharing everything you had to share. And, you know, I, I, I'm glad that you went in depth with it and, like I said, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people that are fighting with addiction um, and people need to hear this stuff because I don't know that kind of addiction. I don't know what that's like. You know, um, I, I stopped drinking a year ago, but I it was nothing to do that. I, you know, I didn't say I was addicted to it. I just did it for reasons I didn't want, to, you know, for other, you know, uh, to change my life. But um, so I, I've heard things where people that have addiction, they tend to move from one drug to another, to alcohol, or something's got to consume it and replace that. So 
you have that story and you're able to share that. And then you're also able to share how you came out on the back end and found help and, um, and got the support you needed. And so I, I'm going to end it here with, you know, you can share with us, you know, how people can reach out to you or reach out to some kind of organization or something if they're looking for help. Um, and then I'll just ask you one quick question before we go. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate all that. That's a great summary. Uh, I'm sure you've been told this before, but I, I shouldn't assume incredible listener to pick up those tidbits along the way and and actually be able to add depth to them without even really knowing much more about me. Uh, that's that's phenomenal talent. So kudos to you. I, I my The best way to reach me is my website, www.jasonlennox.com, J-A-S-O-N-L-E-N-N-O-X, because that really has all my social profiles, a con way to contact me there, um, has uh, the memoir I published last June, which really is uh, everything I just shared uh, in much more detail, um, really nothing left out of that thing. And um, so that's available on my website. Um, I, I've just been trying to spread that to as, as far and wide as I can. Um, I would also really prefer to just be that contact and be that person. There are a lot of different numbers. We could Google, it could find all kinds of different ways to help, but um, I'm plugged into this industry for a reason. And I want to be uh, the center of, of where people come together. And that's a, at the state level, at the insurance level, at the provider level. And I would be happy to field any inquiries, connect with people. And plus, I just have a heart for, you know, one-to-one -one connection, just like you said, to, to, to pay that back. That's what I've dedicated 13 years now to is, is just sharing back with the world. And um, so I, again, would, would be more than happy to, to take a conversation and, and, you know, all the other things that, that I do are, are there on the website as well. So. Yeah. So, uh, the one quick question I have, well, some people think it's quick and some people don't, but uh, what are three key things you've learned and used along your journey? Three key things I've learned and used. Um, you mentioned this already, uh, people, the, the network and the group of people that I surround myself with. Um, and I just land up feel like by accident landed in the group I landed in in early recovery. They have, they, they are the reason that I stuck around as long as I did long enough to get it. And, um, I, I still have that today. Who are the people that are in my life? Who are the people I'm engaging with? Um, that's, uh, maybe not necessarily a, a lesson or a, a methodology. That's just a, the people, my, my network of people is huge. Um, I think, um, service, service and purpose, I think I could lump together. For me, maybe the most critical thing along the journey, because all that stuff that was going on, all the stuff I felt as a child, all the reasons that I kept digging further and further down for the bottle for the drug was because I had a massive hole in my heart. Uh, I had a huge void that I didn't know how to fill. And removing the the substances from my body doesn't mean that i'm good forever now i got to do something to fill that and finding meaning and purpose in serving others in the community and the in the, the generosity that kind of work that i get to do doesn't leave any room for all that other stuff to 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 catch up to me i'm not waking up thinking about 
how I'm going to fight through the day. Um, I, I don't have room to think about how I'm going to fight for the day and, and not go back to drinking and drugging when I wake up and think about how am I going to go out there and make a damn difference and contribute to this world? Like, what do I get to do that's big today that can make a lasting difference? And so meaning and purpose is, is the second thing that I think about. And then I think just overall health and, and by that like nutrition and fitness uh, mental health, um, taking uh, nutrition and fitness being probably the two biggest ones for me, taking care of those health areas of my life and those dimensions of wellness just sets the stage for everything else that I try to do. I try to, to again, maximize my nutrition and stay fit and exercise and, and try to do everything in moderation. And when I can keep the baseline pretty stable, then the rest of the stuff is is a lot easier. So people, meaning, and um, my physical health, really. Awesome. Yeah, I agree completely. That was great. I, I appreciate the answers and appreciate you sharing your whole journey. Um, so if we find time late, later on down the road somewhere, maybe we can have you come back on. We can dive a little deeper on some things and maybe I'll have some questions for you from other people, I'm sure. So we can come back to that maybe. But uh, it was great having you on and thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. It's been fabulous. Yes, it has been. Thank you for taking your time listening to Life's Checkmark. If you like this show, please subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you next time.